Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 38 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm super excited about this episode because this is our second round of the Innovators in Education series, and I am really excited about my guest today. Uh, This is a friend of mine, someone I met years ago, and is now a major player in the ed space and innovation, and has created and led the kind of sharing out of one of my favorite tools in education, Edpuzzle. So, Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Karim. Of course, of course. So, um, I mean, most of the listeners obviously know about Edpuzzle. It's a a tool that we are just really impressed with and oftentimes share with folks and encourage folks to use when they're implementing our model. But before we kind of dig into both your perspective on teaching and learning, kind of the future of education, my perspective, and sort of why our two tools, I think, or our model and your tool work so well together, I think it'd be great to just hear a little bit about your story, Kim, really just like where you grew up, what your journey was in education, and how you started Edpuzzle. So why don't you just Give us the full journey. Share with uh, the listeners how you kind of went from learner to educator to leader of Edpuzzle and I know continuous learner as well. Uh, Wow, that's a long response. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. (laughs) So as a learner, I I had the chance. Well, first of all, uh, my accent is from Barcelona. So let me get that out of the way. I'm, I'm, I'm from Spain. That's where I grew up, even though part of my family is from Argentina. And I also had the chance to to live in Buenos Aires when I was a kid. So I've, I've been here and there learning and adapting to new cultures, which I think was great for, for me and for my family. I then decided to study business and later uh, I studied math as well in college. Then when I finished business, Usually what happens is that the possibilities uh, to join a company are either in the marketing department, the finance department, or a consulting firm. I decided to become a math teacher, which um, unfortunately, many of my professors said I was wasting my life. But both my parents are educators, and I know and I respect how how difficult their job is and the impact they have. And I decided that I wanted to spend a few years in the classroom to try to give back what I receive. And especially because I love math, I thought it would be an easy job for me. (laughs) Um, I love talking about math and and sharing math problems and my passion for for this subject. Um, But obviously, as many listeners probably know, um, it was further from from the truth. And it was definitely the hardest job I, I ever had because it's not just about teaching math. It's, there is obviously a lot of educating a young person to become a better person uh, for society and for, for his future or her future. And, and also not just the students, but the other teachers in the school, um, the parents, the families, all the problems they have, uh, the principal. Uh, trying to convince the principal to get budgets for certain things or being able to do certain projects that you want to do with your class. So obviously it was a, a very rich experience and sorry for the long response, but I think it's important to understand that I, I felt the beauty of the job of being a teacher, but as well the struggles in the classroom. And from one of those struggles is where Edpuzzle was born. Um, I, I had many students that didn't speak the, speak the language I was teaching because most of them came from Pakistan or India and they didn't speak a, a word in Spanish or Catalan. But my principal said that math is a universal language, so I had to figure it out. So I started to use videos in my classroom as a way to engage my students 
and give them a resource that they could self-pace and, and learn at their own speed. Even if language was a barrier, they could watch the video multiple times. But I quickly realized that I had many problems when, when it came to using videos. One of them was accountability. So having no accountability on the learning experience of my students with the video, either in the classroom or at home, was, was a big problem for me because I wasn't able to prepare my class and use the videos effectively. So lucky for me, and I again, you know how lucky I have been. I, I, I start to believe in destiny and all those things because of this. Um, three of my best friends that I know them since we were three years old are amazing engineers and web developers. So they said in a in a Saturday night dinner with friends, I was sharing my my struggles in the classroom, my project with videos and the crappy websites I was creating to share those videos with them. And they said, well, actually we can build that for you if you want. And and that was the beginning of it puzzle. It it wasn't it wasn't um a project to become famous or rich or it was born as a project to help my kids in the classroom among four friends um and we later realized that more more teachers needed a place to host their videos and and hold the students accountable through an engaging experience so that was the beginning of it puzzle i think uh you and i are friends and and talk quite frequently just because of how similar our journeys have been in many ways. I too had a business degree, thought I was going to pursue a career in finance, um, decided I was going to become an educator instead and naturally became a math educator. You know, quickly learned how difficult it was to be an educator. It's still the hardest job that I've ever done in my life by far. Um, but also found very quickly that there were a lot of issues in the way that we taught students that had to be solved and was sort of driven to figure out a way to build a better way to teach students. Um, I also resonate with your story because, you know, the co-founder of the Modern Classrooms Project, who you actually met before you ever met me, Rob Barnett. I mean, most folks don't know this, but we went to the same high school together. We didn't know each other well then, um, but found a connection together when we happened to be teaching at the same school in D.C., years, years later. And in many ways, you know, Rob was doing a version of the model. I did a different version. And, and the, the journey to starting the organization was built out of the same premise, which is that, hey, we both feel like we have a better approach to teaching and learning. Rob was very gifted at many of the elements of creating what we share today at the Modern Classrooms Project. And we partnered together and built the organization to just create, hopefully, uh, a resource, a tool, a structure, a model that can help educators meet their students' needs more effectively. So a lot of commonality there with the storyline, which I think is super, super interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about the early stages, Kim? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, I use videos and I want my videos to be a little bit more accountable. And then to say, hey, friends who seem to be really good at engineering, build this thing. But like, how did you pilot the idea? And what was your initial goal? And when did you figure out it was something worth scaling? So my, my, the story continues that we, we built a website for, for my class. That was the base of Edpuzzle. That, that was 2012. Um, it didn't even have a name. Like only my students and myself could access it. We interviewed other teachers that were using videos in different countries just to validate that they were having the same problems that I was having and seeing if my solution would actually help them. The reason we did this survey was because I shared my website, my math website, with other teachers and zero people used it. And and I was shocked that it was an absolute zero. I always think that if you fail, it's better to fail with <laughs> with an absolute zero than something in between. Zero is like nobody wants to use whatever you have created. And that gave me the chance to just improve from there. We collected a lot of data, understanding that teachers actually wanted to pick certain videos and give have certain flexibility to 
how to use that specific content. And we realized that that was true, that the problem of me having to reinvent the wheel and record the videos from scratch uh, was that I couldn't use any content that I found online because it was a fixed asset. Um, so we started to collect a lot of inf useful information and we we had an idea of uh, like what we wanted that puzzle to be. Um, we presented that idea and that research to an incubator in in California. And I still don't know to this day why they decided to invest on us, but they they invested a hundred thousand dollars on the team, the idea, the company and uh, that we just created. And we moved to California in 2013 to really start Edpuzzle as, as a full-time uh, project. The first day in the incubator, I told our mentors that they made a big mistake, that I, that I would have paid to be there, that they, they actually decided to give us money when I would have given them money to be there. And also I told them that I didn't speak the language. I did, I had never built a company. Um, and I didn't know anyone in California. So I had no network or any way to connect with anyone there. So I, <laughs> I said, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. So they told me three things that still to this day, I repeat over and over again to the rest of the employees, which is, First thing, are you talking to your users? If you are not talking to your users, are you building product? And if you are not building product, are you eating or sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> Those were the three, like all our decisions were based on this. If somebody was telling us, oh, let's go to a conference in San Francisco about technology and whatever, are we going to talk to our users? No. Are we going to be building product? No. Are we going to eat or sleep? No. Then the answer was no. It was a fantastic decision framework for us. And so I visited more than 100 schools in, in, in a few months. Um, I was visiting three schools a day, uh, talking to principals, teachers, tech uh, directors, and I think the advantage of not speaking the language actually was a, a positive thing for us because I was listening more than speaking because I was a little bit embarrassed to talk. So teachers actually told us what to do, what to build, what the, the problems they were having. And we were literally just uh, pushing improvements on a weekly basis. And they, they loved that somebody was coming with cookies and coffee to chat with them and and then we would build a better solution for them and their kids and and that's how we went from not having a product to having something that teachers would love and yeah that's that's you know teachers love your product when they write like really long emails um asking for certain features or because they are very excited about what you're doing and and we started to receive many of those emails uh, pretty fast. You know, what I love about the storyline is two things that I think resonate deeply with what we do at the Modern Classrooms Project. The first, listening to users. I mean, what we're really saying is listen to teachers. Um, you can't create a powerful tool, idea, instructional model, school, leadership structure without listening to the key constituents who implement everything for our education system, and that's the teachers. I actually, to this day, am, am still shocked at how often ideas come up, get pushed down on educators, are attempted to be scaled. And when you take a look at the tool, the idea, the product, you ask the question, like, did a teacher look at this? Like, did a teacher use this? Like, did anyone ask how this is actually going to make sense when it is in the hands of a teacher with 25, 30, 150 students? Um, and what I love about your journey is you were obviously a teacher, like uh, myself and Rob were, but you took the approach of listening to teachers throughout the journey, which is why I think, you know, in many ways, we endorse the tool because it's so user-friendly and productive. The second thing that I really like about what you said, which I think is another key element of why things don't seem to work very often when we think about ed innovation, is 
what I heard there, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kim, is the importance of teacher customization. Like if you just give a teacher something and say, go use it, and they don't have the flexibility to actually manipulate it, upload their own video, add their own questions. Instead, they just have to either just plug and play the tool or not. Then it doesn't actually work all that effectively because the teacher is the expert in the room. They understand their community better than anyone else. They understand their students better than anyone else. And they understand what it takes to merge the expectations of their leadership and their district and their state with the needs of their students better than anyone else. And to just kind of show up and give them something and say, just use it immediately is an unrealistic thing. And I think we've built a model, the Modern Classrooms Project, that's kind of like baked into this idea that we create structure, tools, and a framework, but the educators clearly kind of put their touches very much so. And I think when I used Edpuzzle, that's how I felt the tool was. Like it was a canvas for me to create a structure for my kids to access my tools, to answer questions, and be able to leverage some of the expertise of other educators across the country and the world. And I thought that was really, really powerful. So I see a lot of commonality there, which I think is really, really exciting. I, I think that's that's the biggest change. I, I 100% agree with that. It's just like when you have been a teacher and you understand that the busiest room in the in the school is the copy or printer machine. <laughs> and the reason why is because everybody's trying to come up with a few activities that they're not exactly the what the book is suggesting, but they want to get something from here and something from there and put it together as a as a support to their kids. That's when you understand that it, it it's it has nothing to do with technology. It's just like the adult in the room is the one that makes the decisions on what is necessary for each kid in the room. And and so if you're trying to impose your idea and skip the teacher, that's why many uh, solutions fail is because they have never been teachers and they don't know how a classroom works. Totally. I mean, at the, at the core, like teachers are the masters of chaos, right? Like teachers have to look at 25, 30 kids, 35 kids at the same time who all have different needs, both academically and socially and emotionally. And they have to figure out like, okay, so what do I put in front of all these kids that's going to keep them engaged, challenge the students that are ready for really challenging work, support the students who are, who are in need of some sort of remediation. And there's no one book that does that for you. Um, there's no one like sort of tool that you just open up and has everything. So I think when, when folks miss that part of the journey, miss the fact that like there is just no way to make a difference in education without retaining teacher authenticity and empowering them to be a better decision maker, a more efficient decision maker and empower them to spend more time with their students. Like it's inevitably not going to make a big impact. And I think that that's really tricky stuff. Kim, can you share a little bit more on, I guess your sort of theory of change I think what you talked about a little bit here is the very specific value of Edpuzzle, which I think is, you know, quite clear, which is that A, it's a platform for folks to upload and find other instructional videos. But more importantly, the really amazing value add is you get to embed questions and be able to see what the students' answers are, which creates this unbelievable accountability element to instructional video experiences that just don't exist elsewhere and I think is key and why almost every modern classroom teacher I know who uses Edpuzzle loves Edpuzzle. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's a, a lot about teaching and learning you think needs to change. Is there sort of a perspective and a larger way that you see teaching and learning changing in the direction of? And, you know, what about teaching and learning when you were there and, and what you see across the country and, and the world that you think is is not great for students? So, one one thing I think it's wrong is that um, the educational system is built in a way where the student needs to adapt to the system, but the system does not adapt to the student. So I, I think that's that's the first mistake. Like I have seen some of the smartest kids with, when it comes to arts or when it comes to sports or when it comes to other areas that are less traditional from what the school offers, not being supported by the system and therefore failing and feeling, uh, I would say, inferior to their peers because they were not getting like the grades in school that that reflected their 
different intelligences that they had, or even students in in math. I, I obviously as a math teacher, I, I hate when a student tells me like, I'm not good at math or uh, I don't like math. It's almost like saying I don't like food or I don't like music. Like it's it's just like maybe you were not presented with with the right information or maybe your teacher didn't engage you in a way that would connect or trigger those uh, interests in you. Obviously, I understand that it's very, very, extremely difficult. That's why I admire so much the, the modern classrooms um, approach. It's very difficult to to have that flexibility in the in the classroom and, the, and managing that chaos is is very difficult. But I also, at the same time, I have seen many classrooms around the world, and it, this is not just the U.S. I had the luck to to chat with with many teachers and and administrators and even state uh, people in different countries where their problem is that they don't have teachers in classrooms. Like, <laughs> picture that for a moment. Like, um, or students are not going to school. Like. You may have like the most amazing tech tool or have the most amazing innovative model, but if students don't go to school and or there are no teachers or adults in the room, what are you going to do? And that happens for a high percentage of kids around the world. And I think, and responding to the question, what is the role of Edpuzzle in all this is one, staying true to our idea of giving superpowers to the teachers so that they have the flexibility to differentiate their instruction. But at the same time, all the effort that teachers put into building these lessons, we want that impact to be amplified, not just in their classroom. If if their lessons can help other teachers around the world, and hopefully one day, students that don't even have uh, teachers in the classroom to learn chemistry or math or whatever they are interested in, we would like to be that platform where learning happens. And yeah, I, I think that's a, such a difficult change that obviously we are not going to do alone. And that's why we always believed in in the power of the community. Like, how can we bring value to the teachers, but then the teachers can have like a a bigger impact uh, around the world. And that's that's our vision. I think it's I think it's fascinating and, and I wrote down something you said early on there that I mean resonates with me in in a way that I can't describe, which is that you said kids need to adapt the system, but the system doesn't adapt to the kids. I mean, there's something so destructive about that because one of the core goals of our education system is theoretically to respond to students' needs. A student is supposed to walk into a classroom or a school building, and it's supposed to be constructed such that we meet them where they're at and cultivate learning. And when we build a system that does not adapt and says, student, you got to show up here and play by our rules, and I don't mean rules like, you know, don't act inappropriately. I mean, like, you have to learn this way. You have to learn at this pace. You have to learn at this structure. And if you don't, by the way, we're just going to kind of ignore your needs and keep it moving. There's something really dangerously destructive about that. And it and it compounds on itself, right? I mean, the students know this. They learn this early on. They struggle over time. And you said something interesting, too, where you said, you know, it's really hard to manage a classroom that's differentiated. But I would say it's almost harder to manage a classroom that's super compliant and disengaged, which is, I think, why I would imagine you found teaching really challenging. It's certainly why I did, especially early on, was I knew when I taught traditionally, what I was giving my students wasn't very good. Like, it just wasn't working for them. Um, I wasn't oblivious to that. I think most teachers know that when they're delivering a lesson or, or running a classroom that isn't quite right, they know something's wrong. They're just seeking a blueprint for something else. And I found that to be one of the most exhausting and challenging things about teaching traditionally is I would you know, stand at the front of the room, teach factoring quadratics. Most of my students did not master the skill. I'd give them a test. They don't do well. They go to the next unit. 
and we just keep going through this process. And I'm, I'm thinking when I'm going home, like this must be miserable for them. It's a reinforcing them feeling inadequate. It's not making them learn new skills. They're probably less inspired by the content day by day. Um, and that's what happens when you build systems that aren't adapting to people's needs and, and frankly, ignore people's needs. So I, I think that's a fascinating and very challenging thing to figure out, right? Is like, how do we actually build a world that is more responsive and adapting to our students? I mean, I certainly think the Modern Classrooms Project presents an opportunity there and Edpuzzle does as well in creating a world where kids are actually sharing feedback through the instructional videos. So I think that's really, really interesting. And another thing, another thing that um, I want to add to that, this reminded me on when I was a teacher and I think it's influenced by, by Hollywood like the movies on a person going to a tough neighborhood and and becoming a teacher and things like that. And um, I thought, okay, I have to spend, literally I spent more than 12 hours in my classroom, giving class to students, giving class to students after school, giving class to parents, like Hollywood style, Hollywood style 100%. And students getting better grades, uh, getting attention from the media. Again, 100% Hollywood movie. And then at one point I said, like, what is wrong? Like, what is wrong is it shouldn't be about me in the classroom. Like, the problem is you don't need a person working, like, 12 hours doing crazy things. Because the problem is that when that person leaves the classroom, what is going to happen with those students when when that level of support that it's obviously something that it's impossible to ask to every single teacher in the world what happens when when they they fall in in a classroom where it's less engaging or the teacher is not going to be there to support extra hours after school how are those kids going to be uh keep learning and at that moment i realized the problem maybe it's the hollywood movies that they think that they think the the only way to fix the system is by putting like a ton of hours and doing like very I, I think that the problem is the system itself. Like we we it needs to to change the way we organize our classrooms, uh, the role of the teacher, the role of the student. You the fact that you only learn at school when actually you should be learning at home, probably more than than at school the role of the parents and and i I think that's the problem is um that's when i realized that um i was doing things wrong even if i was getting the good the the results that we are supposed to to say that we're doing things right but that's when i realized like oh the moment i leave this classroom is going back to where it was 100 percent, and it happened i could not agree more that there was something really eye-opening when I realized a couple years in that giving everything I could possibly give to students was not actually good for them. Mm-hmm. And I learned it from veteran teachers, by the way. Like it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my own like personal epiphany. I was doing just that, staying after school every day, Saturday schools calling kids whenever I needed to, never had my own lunch type of thing. And it was a veteran teacher that came up to me once. It was like, I actually took a lunch one day and I went to the faculty lounge and I just like ate a meal. And I remember one of the veteran teachers, not sort of disparagingly, was like, Kareem, you know, like, it's it's honorable what you're doing, you know, staying after school and all that kind of stuff. And you're building great relationships with kids, but but just keep in mind that it's not sustainable. And if it's not sustainable, then it probably isn't long lasting. And I remember like being very shook by that, by this idea that like, what is actually going to change long term if I pour my heart into soul into unit two on quadratics <laughs> and do something unrealistic that isn't going to be scaled in other classrooms or in other students' lives? And in fact, it could be detrimental in some ways because you've created conditions that are unrealistic. And then the kids get blindsided when they're not afforded those conditions, right? When they don't go into environments. I learned this the hard way too because, Kim, remind me again, what grade level were you teaching? I was teaching middle school. So it was 
from 12 year old kids to 16 year old kids. And then after school, I was helping also the high school students. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I, what I think really did it for me was when I saw my students graduate, cause I taught 11th and 12th graders and I was close to these students. And when they would come back and tell me how unprepared they felt for life after high school, like just how unprepared they felt for college or just how unprepared they felt for a job environment, because they would say things like, Mr. Farah, I don't get completion grades in college or like Mr. Farah, they really like don't really let me make mistakes. And I was thinking like, I didn't teach you any of that. I actually taught you a different storyline. One where I was like, I'll just give everything to you. And what I certainly didn't reinforce is 21st century skills, right? This idea that learning can happen anywhere, anytime, that you can be the driver of your own learning. And I think it's so important that we instill those ideas in students. And it it goes back to this idea of we can't come up with band-aids and short-term solutions. Like you can't just suddenly solve education for a student or for a community, you know, by a quick fix, by cramming before a test, right? It's like conditioning. Yeah. But look, look, I, I 100%, but look at the uh, what is happening outside of the classroom. One of the things that, one of the metrics that I was, that helps me sleep at night is like 89% of the kids uh, go to YouTube to, to help them with their homework. Yeah. And I, I give this metric to every teacher in the world. And I say like, look, I don't know what you're doing in the class. But this is what happens with your kids. They don't go to the library. They don't go to their parents. They go to a YouTuber and search whatever they're struggling with. And they listen to three, four, five videos until they figure it out. And they and then they move on. Right. So that was the thing that I said, like, I'm, I'm actually during the pandemic, obviously, a lot of people started using Edpuzzle more and many teachers or principals were like okay this is just a pandemic and i said well like (laughs) before the pandemic and after the pandemic what is going to happen is that your kids are going to keep learning better through video than any other media and actually your teacher should have something to to leverage that that power and so to to your idea of the support in the classroom students are actually finding a way outside of of the traditional ways of learning already it's just like how do we amplify that and and bring that into the classroom and and take advantage of that as, as an educator you know it's so interesting i'm so glad you brought this up because a lot of teachers that we've been talking to talking are talking about the sort of generational shift right that like kids are i mean just the way they use social media using youtube I kind of think is in line with the direction that I certainly think education is going. And it sounds like you do too, which is this idea that education does happen anywhere at any time. Kids are really resourceful. And what we need to do as an education system and as leaders in education and as teachers is again, adapt, right? If students are inherently going to seek out information from a variety of sources to internalize information, let's build instructional environments that actually allow the educator to do what's most important in the classroom, which is a one-on-one and small group instruction, a real discussion, a relationship, right? There's not really all that much value anymore in delivering a bunch of information at the front of the room. It's everywhere. It's accessible. The value that we derive from being in the classroom with students is what happens in those much smaller settings, the one-on-one and the small group, the discussion, the sharing of ideas. Like, what do we actually want to have a discussion about versus what information do we just need them to internalize or review? And if it's something we just need them to have, like you all need this base level of of information or you need this concept or you need to have this in your notes, that shouldn't be taking up live time, especially live time where everyone's kind of together listening. There's a much better way to do that. And clearly the data points to that. So I, I think that's spot on. Now, one one question, I mean, you touched on this, and I think it's it's very much so worth digging into a little bit, is can you talk about what it's been like to run Edpuzzle while the pandemic's breaking? I mean, what I think is obvious, um, it's been the case for the Modern Classrooms Project, and it's, it's been the case for Edpuzzle, is, is there's been a lot of interest in our respective organizations, 
more people signing up for Edpuzzle, more districts using Edpuzzle, and in our case, significantly more teachers experimenting with our model. Um, but you said something I think is super important at the end there when you brought that up, which is that this isn't going away. And at the same time, I'm hearing a lot of potentially more extreme rhetoric, like way more intense ideas about how education is going to change. And I'm just curious around sort of what you think is going to happen in the next year or two in teaching and learning. How are things actually going to change um, in the next couple of years? And what are you concerned about and what are you excited about? So first, I'm, I'm going to say like education up to this point, like the innovation we have seen in the classroom has been like maybe like a 1% or 5% of the teachers trying like crazy things like you and Rob in <laughs> in their classes, which is obviously fantastic and is a, a breath uh, of fresh air because you can see results, see that there are other ways of educating kids. And it's even a higher impact when it's a principal, like bringing a different approach. And we have seen that when the leadership encourages the teachers to, to follow like different uh, innovation styles in the classroom um, is when when we have seen the the deeper impact on the students because the student is no longer doing something innovative one or, or, or three hours a week. Like it's every single hour they are at school that they're follow. Like obviously that, re- that impact on the student is bigger. So the, the pandemic, it was, it was a moment where all teachers were forced to innovate. Some could, or some were already innovating and, and using technology. And it and I heard from them, it wasn't that difficult to switch to a fully remote environment. Obviously, it was not ideal. Edpuzzle was not designed to be in a remote environment 100%. And other teachers didn't have the resources or didn't have the knowledge to know how to apply uh, the technology, or even their students didn't have the technology to to follow, keep up with with the curriculum. So we have seen the highs and lows, uh, especially at the beginning where there was a little bit more uncertainty and everybody was in panic mode. Then principals and teachers started to figure out ways to uh, either survive or thrive during the pandemic. And now I think for what's coming next, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. My perspective is that some teachers will go back to the traditional teaching because they had a bad experience or they were traumatized by uh, the experience with technology or they give up and they want to go back to some to their comfort zone. But then there's going to be a percentage of teachers where I, I do not expect people teaching on Zoom <laughs> I, I don't think that's the best experience, but many of the technologies they used, now they have, they at least know how to use them. So it's going to be interesting, the hybrid model, like where, how do they use the benefits of using technology and the benefits of using time in the classroom, which obviously there are different formats. And we will see what is the percentage of teachers that start doing that. If the leadership in schools realize uh, that there is a way hopefully better for the students to to learn and and be educated and if that percentage is significant enough um i think it's going to be a an inflection point for education in general where we're going to see the teachers that do not adapt or the schools that do not adapt to this hybrid model they're going to start falling behind and i hope they fall behind not because there is a lack of technology in the classroom. I, I think what I have seen, especially with other countries, not, not just in the U.S., but especially in, uh, in countries with less infrastructure, where the lack of technology was not for a lack of motivation from the teacher or the school, but because they really didn't have any resources to give internet to the students at home. Or the students had to share like a mobile device with their parents and their brothers. And obviously those conditions are way harder for for an educator than one where the kids have a one-on-one situation with iPads or or Chromebooks or whatever. 
So um, I really hope that this innovation doesn't become just an opportunity to improve many students and prepare them for a better future. But we don't leave many, like a, a big percentage of students that have lower income or less resources behind. So obviously, everybody has a role in that, including us as a net tech tool. We have to build our platform so that it can be uh, used offline or with lower performance devices or in multiple languages. So we have a role to play, but obviously we it's it's not only us. Like it, it needs to come from uh, the government, the schools, the teachers, the parents, the students. Everyone needs to understand what is happening now. And I'm excited. I'm I'm like for 600 years we haven't see, we have seen the same way of teaching <laughs> in the classroom. And I I I, I was. And you probably were the same. Like people look at you like as a weird person in in the school. I think it's interesting to see like that now everybody is like shocked a little bit. And obviously, it was a horrible situation to to be part of. But if we can see like a, a something positive out of this situation, is that at least it has shaken things up so that now we can figure out a different. And normal or something new for the 21st century and not teach the same way we were teaching in in the 17th century you know i mean i think what you said is so interesting and, and i think you isolated a concept that really summarizes it which is that a lot of the ideas that used to be fringe are now mainstream and it's taken a really long time for those ideas to not be fringe to not be you know rare and like you said, I mean, the model that we were using at the Modern Classrooms Project and that we created was, if you had asked me three years ago, you know, how many teachers out of 100 would use our model in a, in a school building? I'd say five. Yeah. yeah. You know, like that. that's what it felt like at the time. And now if you ask me, I'd say 50, maybe more. And we do have certain schools that are taking it to 75%, 80%, and in some cases, 100%. And I think that that's inspiring uh, to see such a radical shift because, you know, what isn't that radical is the shift in the classroom. I once met with an advisor of mine who, who said, you know, what's exciting about your model at the Modern Classrooms Project is that it's evolutionary and not revolutionary. Um, now, at first I was like, what do you mean? I was like kind of defensive. I was like, I want to be revolutionary. Um, but I realized that... Um, a, that's just a silly thing to care about. But B, what he was really saying there was evolutionary means it's implementable, it's real, it's part of the actual change that's happening now, right? So like when we can see that something that only worked for 5% of teachers is maybe going to work for 50%, that's really powerful change that's happening now. And it's so powerful because classroom instruction hasn't changed for so, so long. And I think the one piece that folks underestimate, and you brought this up a little bit with the way that students you know, access information now on YouTube and the percentage of kids that go home and, and Google or go on YouTube to, to look up content. There's something really, really important to remember, which is that kids are going to start demanding different learning environments and so are their parents. I often use the example of the opportunity to log into a learning management system and access content. Pre-pandemic, that wasn't the norm for most school buildings. It wasn't an expectation for students or parents that they could go into Canvas or Google Classroom or Blackboard or Schoology and see all the coursework and access it when necessary. Well, now everyone's seen that. Everyone's had that opportunity, kids and parents alike. And it's not going to work to strip them of that suddenly because they're going to say, why? For good reason. Like, Why can I suddenly not see what my students you know, or my kids need to access or accomplish? Or why can't I watch an instructional video or access the resources when I missed class for reasons that were out of my control? And I think when kids and families start to really demand certain changes in classrooms, uh, that usually is one of the biggest influencers. And I'm excited to see that play out as well. Um, because ultimately, when parents and students have a voice and a desire for more equitable education, an education system that is adaptive, as you said, to students' needs, and ultimately 
the core idea that a live lecture just isn't equitable because it disadvantages the students who are less likely to A, be able to focus because they might be experiencing a social emotional challenge or B, are less likely to get there uh, because they're experiencing some sort of barrier that stops them from showing up to class on time or making it to class at all. You know, if we just leave those kids behind, that's super destructive. But I do think you bring up a really, really important point that we all need to remember, which is that there is a whole nother group of students, communities, globally and in the U.S. that doesn't even have access yet to the actual infrastructure and the technology to do that. And we need to be very careful about leaving those communities behind. And that's a really hard problem. And as, as you said, it's a problem that can't be solved by one platform program or model. It requires uh, you know, a full an investment. So I'm optimistic. I, I think the, the thing is, at, at the end of the day, what I want to say is that these are uh, what happens next is a leadership challenge. Like nobody likes change, nobody. So imagine if they changed your whole life overnight. This is literally what happened in many classrooms in the US and around the world. Um, obviously people were upset and complaining and, and they didn't like, and we also were in the same boat trying to figure things out. The, but what happens next is, is a challenge of leadership. Like, are you going to see that this really can have an impact on students or are you going to give up and try to be compliant on, and go back to the comfort zone where you were before? And this is something that people will complain and naturally many teachers will go back to the way they were teaching, but it's on the leadership team to say like, no, like we have gone this far. I'm not going to throw in the trash all the work we have put this year that maybe there were things that were bad, but maybe there were other things that were good. Let me get the good things and try to build something better. That's what I hope. Like it doesn't depend on us or a teacher or a student. Is the leadership team saying like, no, we are not going back to where we were before. We are going to build something better. And we already have a few ingredients here that we can use. And I hope, <laughs> uh, I hope there is a lot of these leaders out there. And if they are listening, uh, you have my full support. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be very, very difficult because obviously, no, again, nobody likes change. But if, if you, if you use the data and you see, and you listen to your students, I, I strongly believe that, that people should, should change the way they teach. Yeah, you know, I, I feel very optimistic about it just anecdotally because when we first started, one of the questions we often got from philanthropists, educators, school leaders was, how hard is it to get leaders to buy in? We know that your model is direct to teacher. Any teacher anywhere can do this, but it must be difficult for a teacher to try to do this when their leaders don't support them. And when I get that question now, I say, I haven't run into a leader in a long time who doesn't actually think our model is worth investing in at small scale or large scale and having teachers at least try it and innovate and make it happen. And that I think anecdotally for me makes me feel more and more confident that we are going to be moving in a direction where leaders are embracing innovation because they know it's the right thing to do. So I feel great about that. My, my fear, my fear is that it becomes like leaders see it more as a political thing, like a, okay, like I have to try to get a job in two years to become a superintendent or, and they try to be, to make many um, stakeholders happy fast. When I hope they see what is the impact this is going to have in future generations where, when, when they are not in that school. Like that's, that's the idea I had when I was like putting too many hours in the classroom and I realized like, okay, whatever I'm doing now has an impact in the short term, but will have zero impact in the long term. That That is the kind of mindset I hope people see now to say like, how can I have an impact in the, the, the next generation? Like, how can I prepare the stuff now so that the next generation will be better prepared? And I will not see the results. And, and that's, that I think is something many teachers understand because they rarely see the fruits of their effort. Um, but I hope the leadership uh, teams also see that. I could not agree more.
change takes a long time and you have to invest in it. And it's so true, especially when it's innovative. So, so true. Well, Kim, I mean, I honestly forgot I was on a podcast about halfway through there. So it is, as usual, an absolute joy to chat with you. I think you bring so much to the table and your perspective on education is inspiring and your tool that you've created and now scaled is just deeply impactful. And we at the Modern Classrooms Project love it. You know, anytime we have a listener, especially a guest, we always say, like, feel free to share any ways or, you know, listeners can make sure to access um, what you've created. Um, so feel free to kind of share with our listeners now if there's uh, anywhere you would direct them if they want to learn more about Edpuzzle. Um, to Edpuzzle, obviously, edpuzzle.com is our website. We have uh, social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, where we share like plenty of ideas and new stuff that we come up with. We also have a really good blog. It's blog.edpuzzle.com where we share many ideas that come from the classroom um, uh, on how to use technology, not just Edpuzzle, in in the classroom. And yeah, um, usually the whole team is very responsive. So if you want to follow us on social media and share any thoughts, ideas, it's likely it's going to resonate inside the company and everybody will hear about it. So we're always listening to what teachers and leaders in schools have to say about technology, our platform, or any ideas that, that might be useful. So, yep. I love it. And I'm going to use this to shamelessly to share that we have an awesome micro-credential within the Edpuzzle subset of credentials. Edpuzzle offers a bunch of different credentials um, that you can take. And one of them is the Self-Paced Classroom brought to you by the Modern Classrooms Project. So um, definitely check that out as well. As everyone knows, if you're interested in learning more about the Modern Classrooms Project, you can go to www.modernclassrooms.org or learn.modernclassrooms.org or any of our social media tools. Other than that, Kim, Thank you so much for joining us. It was a blast. Um, And I know this is not going to be the last time we talk. I'm sure we'll be talking very soon as well. So thanks for jumping on. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.